Amen. Chad Bird writes, Parenting takes about 18 years to finally figure out. I argue with him. I think it takes longer than that. But we're totally winging it through our children's infant and toddler years. We tumble and stumble through the prepubescent range of their existence. And when they begin to morph into those esoteric, half-child, half-adult, mutant humans, commonly christened, christened teenagers, we scratch our heads and pull out our rapidly graying hair. Seems like I've done a lot of that. Then and only then, about the time they turn 18, we feel 50 years older and an epiphany happens. It dawns on us that we may just possibly have graduated to momhood and dadhood. Or maybe not. I don't have to tell you of the great number of shattered and scattered parent-child relationships. Paul uses a phrase in the opening verse of our text from Colossians chapter 1 that captures those ruptured relationships. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind. That's from verse 21. We could also translate the word alienated as estranged, which calls to mind the sadly the sad reality of broken marriages and bitter hearts, and not just out there. Sadly, the reality is that marriages are no more secure in the church as outside, thereby proving again our fallenness. The faith that lives on forgiveness, that prays, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, Matthew 6.12 often fails to forgive in return. But there is an even more deadly estrangement, an absolute alienation. In Ezekiel chapter 14, Yahweh calls his people to repentance, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. The church at Colossae to which Paul writes, likely was not troubled with idols in the more common sense of the term, objects of stone and silver. What appears to trouble them, likely the report that Epaphras brings to Paul in prison, was a type of proto-gnosticism. We note the great stress that Paul places on the correct teaching concerning the person and work of Christ, the God incarnate. The emphasis he gives, the correction he applies to terms and concepts such as fullness and filling, knowledge or gnosis. He writes against religious practices that were exclusive, that showed great interest in cosmic beings, that valued its initiation rituals and promoted asceticism. Paul's concerns give rise to some of the vocabulary in our reading today from chapter 1. When Paul speaks of fleshly reconciliation in verse 22, he directly confronts an overemphasis on the Spirit. In verse 23, he speaks of creation in positive terms and not something from which the religious seek to escape. The mystery hidden in verses 26 and 27 is now revealed in Christ, revealed by his word, 
a word that imparts all wisdom. Verse 28, rejecting the claim of the heretics that the Pauline gospel was deficient and had to be supplemented by knowledge or wisdom. The threefold, folk, the threefold use of everyone, also in verse 28, stresses the universality of the Christian message over the elitism that might be mature in Christ. With maturity or telos in the original, Paul is likely taking a technical term from their playbook and bending it to the use of the gospel. The problem for us is not the proto-gnosticism of first century Colossae, nor the full-blown versions of the second and third centuries, but it is the same problem of which the heresy at Colossae is only an example. Symptomatic evidence of mingling the truth of God's word with the wisdom and teaching of the world around us. For us, it can be the temptation to treat, to treat the church as a business. Pastors become chief executive officers, managing a staff in pursuit of a mission statement. Under this scheme, success or failure has a metric, a numerical value that determines acceptable performance. We forget that God is hidden in suffering and he is triumphant on the cross and abiding with the downtrodden. Another mingling of the worldly wisdom happens when I treat the faith as my faith. When I graze at the smorgasbord of religious ideas, picking and choosing what works for me. Conversely, I reject everything that makes me uncomfortable or that would require a change of lifestyle. I, or we, forget that God's standards are absolute. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy, it says in Leviticus 19. Mingling the truth of God's word with the wisdom of the world can have devastating effects. Gerald Nichols offers an illustration. He tells of an American eagle that hovered over the icy waters of the Niagara River. And Jeff knows what that is like. Visitors watched as it soared over the river and then dove at an ice flow, moving toward the falls. Partially encased in the flow was the carcass of a lamb. The eagle's talons sunk deep into the frozen flesh, and it began feeding on the corpse. Periodically, it would come up, look around, and assess the distance to the falls. It continued to feed as water lapped over the ice flow, gathering speed as it neared the precipice. At last, realizing the falls were only a short distance away, the big bird began to spread its wings and flap them in anticipation of a last-minute liftoff. However, when the ice-encrusted lamb reached the crest of the falls and the eagle exerted its greatest strength, it realized its talons had been frozen into the body of the lamb by the spraying and splashing of the freezing water. The eagle was carried to its death, crashing on the rocks, such as feasting on worldly wisdom. Tasting of the world and its wisdom will not, cannot, change God's standards, nor will it remove our sin. Nobody's perfect, and our sin separates us from God. 
No one does everything exactly right all the time. The student with a 4.0 grade point average still missed a few points along the way. Not even the instructor writes the perfect answer key every time. The lady with the perfect driving record slid through at least one of those annoyingly placed stop signs when no one was looking. The perfect husband that impresses everyone certainly has one or two faults that his wife can tell you about. It is often the quiet child that needs the most scrutiny. God's standards, as I said, are absolute and leaves us standing outside, frozen to our sinful nature. The wages of sin is death, Paul reminds us in Romans 6.23. We would be lost eternally. But now, Paul declares in verse 22, But now Christ reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. No appeals to better motives behind our actions. No explanations over how circumstances shifted. No comparisons to the more debased actions of others. Just Christ. Only Christ in his fleshly body through his death. Paul's language is a direct assault on the heretics of Colossae who sought a redeemer that was spirit and not flesh and a redemption through knowledge and not the redeemer's historical death and bodily resurrection. Just Christ, whose death declares, you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach. It is also a direct assault on the spirituality of our days. The physical elements of the faith give great assurance. They are tokens of God's promise. The water of baptism that washed over you, the bread and wine, the body and blood ingested into you, the words of absolution spoken before you. They enter through your ears, they descend to your heart, they cleanse and they comfort. You are reconciled. J.A.O. Proust reminds us, between people, reconciliation is a two-way street. Not so with God's reconciliation of the world. God is the subject. We are always the objects. He reconciles us. We are passive. God performs this reconciliation through the historical work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Reconciliation dramatically reverses estrangement. It annuls alienation. No one should feel loneliness in the church, that is, in the reconciled family of God. This compels us to act more like family, especially to those who live without other family. That we in our congregation might reveal the mystery hidden for ages and generations. It was hidden in the Old Testament under types and shadows, but now it is revealed in Christ, the hope of glory. From him we will receive glory. That is the fullness of eternal life in the resurrection of the body to which our hope is directed. A mystery revealed by the Spirit through the written and spoken word. It is Christ in you through sacramental washing and eating the means of grace. Yet it remains a mystery 
And the formula of Concord warns all Christians that they not pry presumptuously into this mystery with their reason, but simply believe with the dear apostles. Shut the eyes of their reason. Take their understanding captive in obedience to Christ and take comfort and rejoice without ceasing in this, that in Christ our flesh and blood have been raised so high to the right hand of the majesty and almighty power of God. It is a glorious hope, a glorious promise of God. If indeed you continue in the faith, Paul writes, stable and steadfast, stability comes through the hearing of the gospel. Faith is object-oriented, faith in Christ and, his, and in his reconciling work. But faith is also a subjective act. I believe I am faithful to the word that I have received. Paul Dietering observes, faithfulness is part and parcel of faith. There is no saving faith in Jesus that is not faithful to him. And the only means of faithfulness to Christ is faith in him. Hand in glove, the faith that holds the object of faith, the gift of faith that clings to the gift of salvation. Once we were alienated and hostile in mind, written by Paul. Quite apart from us, Christ reconciled us to God in his body by his death. It brings a peace with God that he offers to all men and women. Paul longs to present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone who places their trust in Christ alone, who is ready and willing with heart and soul and strength and mind to believe and trust Jesus and his precious word is that mature Christian. With spiritual maturity, we can distinguish and resist the influences of the world and look to Christ and his word alone. Our faith is grounded in Christ, and now we can sing with the hymn writer. I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ my Lord, and this my faith confessing, unmoved I stand on his sure word. Amen.